Hey, good morning. I uh, sure hope you're doing well. Welcome to those in Pleasant View and those in the chapel. Uh, glad you're here as well. Uh, just a kind of disclaimer, I uh, said something in the, in the bulletins this morning, but this is kind of like a PG sermon, okay? So if you have young kids and they're in the room and you don't want to answer difficult questions later, I'd recommend you use Alive Kids today, okay? Um, just because the story of Jesus has to go through some winding paths. It may not be places that you're ready to have that conversation with your kids yet. So just wanted to give you that disclaimer. So saves my email later. Okay, everybody with me? So uh, let's have a word of prayer. We'll get started. Lord, uh, this is a great group of folks. And uh, Lord, uh, they're so beautiful. And I just pray that you would um, allow us for the next few moments to hear from you. And not just hear from you, Lord. Uh, when we leave here, we want to be more like you. I want to be more like Jesus when I leave this place today. And, and I pray that for everybody who's listening to the sound of my voice. We want to be more like Jesus in how we love, how we live, how we lead, um, how we care for our families, all these things, how we are, who we are in private. We want to be more like you. So, Lord, come. Um, be part of our services, we ask. Uh, continue to anoint our time together in your name. Amen. Well, Christmas is always this controversial time, and the reason it's controversial is because of what I'm getting ready to ask you. Um, so how many of you, by, by lifting your hand, confession time, how many of you are fake Christmas tree people? Would you raise your hand? Come on, just own it. Everybody good and high. Everybody good and high. Okay, put your hands on. How many of you are Christians? Would you, I, mean, I mean, how many of you are, are, no, I'm just kidding with that. How many of you are, 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 are real Christmas tree people? Can, you, can I see that? Yeah, see, this is a big, this is a big debate right now in our culture, and, and I don't want to let on where I stand on it. But I probably will. Um, so America's sort of divided on this Christmas tree thing, and it's kind of got me a little disturbed. And I'll tell you why. Because you, you can't talk about politics. You can't talk about sports. Go Tigers. And, and America's sort of divided on this issue of Christmas trees. And, and some of you went to your attics, or some of you went to your basements, or your storage bin, whatever, whatever you have, to find the perfect Christmas tree. And you unpacked it. And then you, like, with, not with joy, but you unpacked it with a sense of task. And so you kind of, you know, the whole family didn't get around and unpack the box. You know, that's not what happened. Someone in the family most likely took the tree, and you pushed the poles together, and you plugged in the pre-hung lights, which didn't work because the tree's 30 years old. And then you spent four hours sort of fluffing the branches. Am I close? Spent four hours sort of fluff, fluffing these branches to make it look, look realistic, and all the while, you're sneezing from all the dust that's kind of accumulated on the tree over the year. It's a Norman Rockwell picture of America, really, and a picture of Christmas. Now, now two-thirds, you'll be interested to know, of American households actually display an artificial tree. I think we're a little under that in this room. But roughly 10, 10 million artificial Christmas trees are, are sold every year uh, in the U.S. And here's why. Fake is convenient and artificial. It's clean and artificial is cheap. However, let me just kind of give a public service announcement. No adult reflects back on fond memories of helping mom and dad unpack the Christmas tree from his cardboard box. And this, friends, I would suggest is really what's wrong with America. It's not fake news. It's fake trees. That's what's wrong with America, okay? So, so you heard it first here. It'll be on the news later. But it's not all doom and gloom. And here's why I say that. There are still over 34,500,000 of us. who purchase live trees every year. Christmas trees are to be pursued. They're to be sought after. The perfect tree is to be found. Some families will actually go to the farm to cut it down themselves. And the kids run around to try to find the perfect tree. And you know where the perfect tree is. 
It's always the one that's furthest away from where you have to pay for the tree. And that's the one they want. So you cut it down, even though you haven't cut anything down in your entire life. But we dads, and we're sometimes moms, pretend like we know exactly what we're doing. And then you kind of maybe go to a local tree stand, support local economy, and then some kind person shoves your live tree through a mesh wiring so you can get it home on top of the minivan as God intended for us to do. Hey, did you all see this story this week about Christmas trees? There was this family that got pulled over for having a Christmas tree that was too big. And so the police saw this and said, I can't believe this is happening. And so if you've ever seen Christmas Vacation, this is actually it in reality. This took place uh, in our great, great country. So you put the tree up, up, up at home if it's a live tree so the house will smell like Christmas unless you actually get the artificial smell stuff and spray that around or candles. And if you do, I, I think you might want to look into some therapy on that. I mean, I, I'm not sure, but I just don't know that that's really a good thing. But anyway, you sort of kind of put that around there. And then for the next, you know, the dog can mark its territory now because there's a live tree in the house. And then the next six months or so, you sort of vacuum up pine needles, you know, this is, this is Christmas in America. And I, here's why I bring all this to your attention. Uh, you might be interested to know that trees are actually a big deal. Not just in our culture, not just like divisive as they are, but they're actually a big deal in Scripture. In fact, cover to cover, trees are mentioned throughout the pages of Scripture. You could probably study for a year just the concept of trees in Scripture. They're all over the place. And that's kind of what we want to study for this series. At the beginning of the Bible... Uh, in the Garden of Eden, there were this couple of trees there. And you can read about this for yourself, Genesis, the first three chapters. One of these trees is called the Tree of Life. There were no boundaries on the Tree of Life. You could have the Tree of Life. It was, it was there. But the other tree was called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And there were boundaries on that tree. And what these trees represent, if you'll allow me, is actually God's love for humanity. And here's what I mean by that. God's saying, I'm not making you pre-wired to be my person, to be my people. I'm not making you a robot. I didn't program you. He said, what I'm saying is, you can choose. That's how much I love you. Because if you choose freely to love me back, well, that's the best kind of love. And as you know, humanity, instead of choosing tree of life, we actually chose tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis. At the end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, that tree of life occurs again. It's in that chapter, in that book as well. There's a tree in the middle of heaven called the tree of life. And the people of heaven can actually be with it and, and live with it forever and live forever with God. It's eternal. It's an abundant life. That's what God intended all along for all of us. And that tree is represented in both Genesis and Revelation. It's not just the beginning and the end. The psalmist also talks about trees throughout the psalms. Um, he, the psalmist compares people who delight in the Lord to, to a tree planted by streams of water. Whatever they do, prosper. Then there's Jeremiah. He's the weeping prophet. He also mentioned trees. He said this in Jeremiah 17. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green in the year of drought. It is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Jesus also mentioned trees, and this is one of the weirdest stories in Scripture for me. I still don't really know what it means, just to be honest with you, um, but uh, it's still a weird story. So one day, Jesus is hungry, and he goes by a fig tree to get some figs, but the thing doesn't have any figs, so Jesus cursed the fig tree, like zapped it, 
you know, that kind of thing. And it withered up and died. Little known fact, this is when fig newtons were invented. Right there, they're old, like, dead figs, like this crumbly, dry figs. And they say, hey, let's make a cookie. And that's what they did. Jesus was teaching one time, and he used a tree bearing fruit to reveal that you can tell what is in a person's heart, not by their words, not by what they say, but you can actually tell what's in a person's heart by what they do. That's, that's, that's the real bomb diggity there. Matthew 7, Jesus says this, In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree, that, that tree bears bad fruit. And of course, Paul, who writes the majority of the New Testament, he spoke about trees as well. He taught about the, the fruit of the Spirit, remember? He said, those who belong to Jesus, they produced fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Trees are all through the pages of Scripture. And, and I, guess, I guess, you know what, we can all sort of relate to trees in the room. Not like a, a hippie granola kind of thing. I'm not saying, I'm not talking like that. I'm not saying, but what I'm saying is that we all have a tree. We talk about family trees in our lives, don't we? We talk about family trees, and, and, and we all have one. If you're not familiar with this term of what a family tree is, it describes all the relationships that produced you. All of the different relationships that allowed you to be here in this moment. That, that's what a family tree is. So your mom and dad and their moms and dads and their brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and all these places, we have this family tree. And so there's this tree trunk, you know, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, or great, it depends how far you've gone back. And then you have all these branches and limbs and leaves that come from those two people. And no matter how big the family tree becomes, how many turns and twists it actually makes, all the people who are part of that family share some of the same bloodline. Some of the same DNA. There's this recent rise in our culture about learning about our bloodlines. And now you can do these things online. You know, you can Ancestry.com and different kinds of things. But you can actually, they'll trace it all back for you now. And you can find people that you're related to. And, and, and we're sort of infatuated with that. I mean, a lot of folks are doing that. And, and, and I, I think that one of the reasons that maybe we're spending so much time seeing what's back there you know, kind of infatuated with that, is I wonder, I wonder, I guess, if we all, and I try to look at this from, from what's going on in our culture. So as a culture that is so geared toward what's ahead, as a culture that's so looking forward to the next event, why do we care about what's back? What's kind of turned, on, turned us to kind of look that way? And here's what I would suggest. Maybe, maybe it's because we're all sort of hoping that there's a, a diamond in the rough in the family tree. Maybe we're kind of hoping that there's some kind of champion back there or some kind of hero or somebody who did something amazing back there. Oh, they invented aspirin. That's my uncle. You know, that kind of thing. Maybe that's what we're hoping. Someone that made a difference. And the reason is because if, if I had an aunt or an uncle who did something amazing, who maybe made the world a better place, then maybe there's good in me too. If I had a relative who finished well, well, maybe, maybe we can finish well, too. My experience with family trees, including my own, is that if you go back far enough, there are usually some limbs 
you would like to chop off of your family tree. <laughs> Have you all noticed that? There are like some periods and some seasons or some relatives like, oh, <laughs> prison. You know, you know, there's something bad happened right there. And, and there's some season of growth. There's some point of the family history that we'd rather not acknowledge. And even, even today, as those times are reflected on, there are certain names that are mentioned around family tree discussions. And you mention them in a whisper. Oh, Uncle Jim, when does he get out? You know, that kind of conversation. Or, the, or, or like maybe you go further and say, oh, Aunt Sally, we never knew she drank. You know, there's kind of these quiet conversations that go on, which leads to this mind-blowing truth that you all, all know, but we need to start where we all know, and it's this. Nobody gets to choose their family. You're just plopped into it. Nobody gets to choose it. And for some of us, so family now, and we've talked about that, is this word. It's an idea filled with joy and fulfillment. And and we're trying to raise the best family on the planet and the best family the world's ever seen, the most holy family and all that. We're trying to do that. For others of us in in the room, family's actually a point of embarrassment. It's a discouraging place. Even right now, there's some family dynamics going on that are making you uncomfortable or discouraged. Some families actually grow up on the wrong side of the tracks. You heard that terminology before? How many of you all from the wrong side of the tracks? I, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah, I can tell by many of you that you weren't. But anyway, so there's kind of a wrong side of the tracks thing. I, I, was, I was that. Some families have a reputation of broken relationships. You know, you look back and think, oh, yeah, that tree, that limb, they're no longer together. They're now over. You have to do that. Some families have this history of addiction, and some families have this kind of it's part of their lives. And if we're not careful, what happens is when we start thinking about the families we came from or families we come from, we, get, we begin to believe that maybe those things about our family might be true about us. And so it looks like this. Well, I'm less because of where I grew up in, where we grew up. So I'd better perform. I'd better succeed. If I'm not succeeding, at least better pose. Or how about this? I can't beat this. It's just who I am. It was my grandfather's problem. It was my dad's problem. It's going to be my problem. Part of my family tree. I've heard this one before. You know, my grandma left. My mom left. So I figure it's probably my time now. I'm going to leave. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Scripture, just as a person that likes to read it, is I like how the scripture includes family trees. Now, I'm not saying I read them all, because I don't. I mean, I, I think we get a pass on those. We can skip uh, many, like the whole numbers thing. You can skip that. But I do, I do like the fact they're in there, and I'll tell you why. Because genealogies lend credibility to the scripture. Somebody took all the time to tell who begat, who begat, who begat, who begat, who, whatever that means. You know, everybody kind of, it's in the Bible. And so these are historical figures, real people. In fact, Jesus' family tree is spelled out in Scripture in a couple of different places. And, and Jesus, for those of us from the wrong side of the tracks, he had people from the wrong side of the tracks. In fact, guess what? Jesus was from the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> you know what they said about Jesus? Oh, Jesus is from Nazareth. It's like today, like Belton or Six Mile. You know, that's where Jesus is from, right? And then, <laughs> and then they went on to say, they say, nothing good comes out of there, right? <laughs> Yeah, he was from the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, he has people in his family tree that they only talked about in a whisper. Oh, her. 
And that all leads me to this important question of the Christmas season that I think is important the church wrestle with, and it's this. If Jesus had people like that in his family tree, then is it possible there's room for me in his family tree? Matthew 1 starts the genealogy of Jesus. And if you're into genealogies or if you just like try to skip them, you usually read the first verse and you miss the most important ones. So Matthew chapter 1, if you just read Matthew 1 and 2, uh, man, it's going to be kind of a, a, a hall of fame sort of thing. Matthew 1 verse 1 and 2 says this. And Matthew, he wrote a gospel. It's one of the first books of the New Testament. He was a tax collector, a legit historical figure. He writes his account of the time he spent living and eating and breathing with Jesus. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, right now, he's a rock star. Okay? Son of David, son of Abraham. You don't get any richer pedigree. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. You remember Judah and his brothers? They eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So what we have so far at the first reading, any Jewish child would read that and think, Oh my goodness, I wish I was part of that champion pedigree. I wish I was part of that. Because these were, these were and are historical and heroic people. Oh yeah, my Uncle David took down a giant with a slingshot. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, that's amazing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, they changed the course of history. And at first reading, you think, man, I could never be part of that. But then we come to verse 3. And in verse 3, there's a Gentile woman named. By the way, I think there's three Gentile women named in Jesus' family tree. The first one is Tamar. Tamar is one of those growths of a family that you would want to kind of prune out of a family tree. If you could edit your own family tree, you might lop this part off. The story's told in Genesis 37. I'm going to kind of breeze through it. You can go back and read all the details yourself, but I'll try to give you the highlights. Judah ends up finding this non-Jewish wife, a Gentile wife, for his son. That was a big deal. And his son was firstborn. His name was Ur. Now, let's pause long enough to say this. How do you come up with the name Ur? So the way I figured it went like this. Judah's wife came to her and sa- came to him and said, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. And he went, Ur. She said, great, that'll be his name. And that's kind of how the whole thing came to be. I'm convinced. That's probably in the Bible somewhere. So that's kind of where Judah's name is Ur, or Judah's son's name is Ur. Anyway, Ur was this terrible guy. He was incredibly wicked. And we have no idea what specifically he did. But let me just tell you how wicked this guy was in the eyes of the Lord. The scriptures say he was so wicked, the Lord put him to death. Now, I don't know what you have to do to get on that hit list, but that's what Ur was doing. So wicked, the Lord puts him to death. Now, it was the custom of the Jewish people that if a man dies, the wife of that man would go to his brother. And the idea was that brother's widow was then to receive a child in order to keep part of the family. Are you tracking what I'm saying? And so that was supposed to be what was going on. That was the custom. And so that's what happened. Ur dies, and so Judah takes Tamar and gives her to his other son, Onan, which I think was just a misunderstanding, because I think Judah's wife came to him a second time and said, I'm pregnant, and he said, oh man, she thought he said Onan, and that's how that, that's how that name came to be, that's in the Bible. 
Okay, it's not. But anyway, Onan, he refused to follow through with the Jewish custom. And so what happened was he wouldn't, he wouldn't do what he was supposed to do and provide a child for Tamar. And the Lord saw this as wicked as well. Guess what happened? The Lord put Onan to death because he was so wicked. Tamar is 0 for 2. She's married two dudes from the same family, and both are so wicked. Whatever that was, the Lord puts them to death. Judah has one more son named Shalach, but he's too young. I have a theory about Shalach, but I'm not going to share it because you all didn't appreciate the first two. So (laughs) Judah said to Tamar, here's what I want you to do. Shalach is still too young. So you live as a widow, and when this son gets old enough, you'll be given to him as his bride. But keep in mind, Judah's seeing this Tamar as a black widow. You follow me? He doesn't want to lose another son. So time passes. Shalach gets old enough to become the husband, but Judah doesn't follow through on the promise. He doesn't do the right thing. Meanwhile, Judah's wife dies. And Judah goes out of town on a business trip. And Tamar hears about it. He's going out of town on the business trip. Tamar's sort of desperate because she's supposed to have been given to Shalak. That hasn't happened. So Tamar takes off her widow's clothes, and she dresses up like a prostitute. And then she goes, and she waits for Judah, her father-in-law, to come along. Long story short, Judah and Tamar get together and have a special hug. And that's sort of what happens kind of in that moment. That's sort of what took place. He hires a prostitute. But Judah had forgot his wallet. It's in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. Judah forgot his wallet, and so he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you my cord, this cord. It's kind of a part of the business transactions, and a, a seal and the staff. And so then I'll send my servant back, and, and my servant will pay you. Tamar says, okay, we're good to go. And then the whole transaction took place. Of course, as soon as Judah left, Tamar takes off the prostitute clothes and goes back to living as a widow. But she keeps the seal and the cord and, and the staff. About three months in, Tamar's widow clothes start getting a little tight around the belly. It ends up that Tamar is actually now pregnant with Judah's child. Judah hears that Tamar's pregnant, and he goes off. And in fact, he says, hey, I'll tell you what, burn her at the stake. Let's, let's burn her. That's kind of what's going to happen. And then Tamar comes out to be burned, and she stands before Judah, and she pulls out the seal and the robe, or in the cord and the staff. And she goes, this is kind of the father of my child. And Judah immediately recognizes everything that happened, ends up calling her more righteous than he was. Just a little weird thing that you might want to follow up on later, but Tamar actually gives birth to twins. Two twins, of course. (laughs) There's, There's two of them. You're welcome. You're welcome. Anybody want to guess how many, if there's triplets, to be, yeah. So, <clears throat> unusual thing happens at birth. This is in the Bible. But an unusual thing happens at birth. So she's in the birthing process, and apparently this hand comes out. And so the, the, the uh, maid person, the servant, maid servant, draw, draw, draws a, kind of ties a cord around that wrist. Well, then the hand goes back in. And then the other kid comes out first. And so this kind of happened. And so what that basically happened was Perez was born, was born first. 
And then Zerah, which was the scarlet, was born second. And the bloodline of Jesus actually followed through Perez, the younger. Now, here's my review so far. We have this desperate woman who has lived in two incredibly tough relationships. We don't know what those relationships were, but if we had to brainstorm what would cause a man or a husband to be viewed as wicked, we could probably come up with a list. So wicked that God killed them both. So she trusts her husband's family. She trusted family. Again, we could probably have a conversation about that. To care for her. Because she's desperate. She's in a desperate situation. And if they don't care for her, things don't look good for Tamar. She's so desperate when the family doesn't follow through with what it's supposed to do, she tricks her father-in-law. Now, she's not the first, nor will she be the last, desperate person to do something wrong. So here's my questions. What would you call a guy like Jacob, who's leading a family but doesn't do the right thing? What would you call a husband like Ur or Onan, who is so wicked, so evil, and Tamar's bearing the brunt of all that? What would you call a woman who tricks her father-in-law and ended up sleeping with him? What would you call a woman who dressed like a prostitute to do that? Well, Jesus called all of them family. And it's not like this is just one. There's an exception. You read just a couple of verses later and you come across this beautiful lady named Rahab. Again, a Gentile, not a Jewish person. And she's the family member that everybody whispered about. In fact, this is the only place, Matthew chapter 1, where this lady is mentioned without her profession. Because everybody knew her, not by her last name, by what she did, Rahab the prostitute. Not only was Rahab a prostitute, she actually ran a house of prostitutes. Here's how this story kind of unfolded. The Jewish people leave Egyptian slavery. They come to this city called Jericho. And they send in two spies to go ahead to see if they're ready to take the city of Jericho. The two spies run into Rahab, the prostitute, in the city. And she lets them know that she actually believes in their God. And so she helps these two spies escape the city. But she only asks for one thing in return for her help. She says, when you all attack the city, when God gives you this city, because that's what's going to happen, she's saying, I just ask that you would spare me. And the spies say, yeah, we'll do that. You just tie a red cord in your window, and when the attack begins, you'll be spared. So Rahab does that, and she's spared. Let me ask you a question. What would you call a woman who sleeps around a lot? Let's get even more uncomfortable. What would you call a woman who hires other young girls to sleep around a lot and get paid for it? Jesus called her family. And this is blowing my mind. 
my point is this. People that have family baggage they're ashamed of. People that have family baggage that are difficult, as no doubt everybody in this room has at some point, are included in Jesus' family. Which leads to the most important question of the morning. How? That's what's relevant to me and respectfully to you. Because we can immediately determine by the acts of Tamar and Judah and Rahab, we can immediately determine that apparently you're not in the family based on what you do that's good or good things in your life. But everything we've heard so far is based on the fact that God is good. And God can do good things in and through me, even when I'm not so good. See, there may be bragging and self-righteousness on earth, (laughs) but make no mistake, nobody's going to be able to get to heaven and say, you're darn right I'm here. Where's my house? That's not big enough. Give me another one. That doesn't happen in heaven. Nobody goes to heaven and walks through the streets and says, you know what, I deserve this. I finally arrived. There's no earning in God's kingdom, only gifts. We're saved by a gift. If it was something you earned, it'd be a wage. It's not, a, not anything you earn. So how do we get in? How do I get into the family, even if I got a jacked-up family? Paul writes this letter to Rome. It's called, anybody want to guess? Yeah, Romans. So he's, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and how these two need to go together. How it's not just the Jewish faith. This Jesus came for all people. And once again, the Bible uses a tree to talk about how we can be part of the family. Romans 11 says this. If some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, he's talking to the Gentile believers, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree. And I just want to stop right there because you've already heard the word that I want to draw your attention to. I'm not much of a tree farmer. I'm not any kind of tree farmer, to be honest with you. But this word grafted caught my attention. I tell you, if you're not familiar, grafting is this process where a good tree is actually cut into. And I'm sure I'm going to mess this up, so if you're like a tree expert, tell me later. But you're going to you cut into this tree, and what they do is they stick this branch or this part from another tree, and they stick it into that wound or the cut of the, of the, of the tree. Does that make sense? It's kind of like this kind of thing happening. And then they will tape it or tie it or prop it up right there until it actually all grows together to become kind of one tree. And that's how we become part of Jesus' tree. Jesus was cut. He, He was wounded. So you could be grafted in. 
He bled so we could live. He scarred so we could be called sons and daughters. We were grafted in. And if we weren't, this is no good at all. Christmas trees aren't Jesus' idea. But I like the idea of where they came from. They actually came over from pagan beliefs. And that's not unusual. Christianity has borrowed a lot of pagan beliefs and redeemed them for something good. These cultures actually worshipped the sun. Pagan, pagan cultures. What happened was, during the winter solstice, which was the longest, coldest, darkest time of the year, people would cut these evergreen bows and they'd put them in their house, houses, just to remind them that eventually the sun comes out, right? Eventually this dark, cold time of year ends and the sun returns and when it does that, the things that are dead actually receive new life and they start growing again. And that was just their way to get through the winters. And trees and crops all come back with the sun. Well, you all are all armchair preachers, I'm sure. So today as Christians, I think this is a great idea to celebrate. Though our world is dark and cold, darkness doesn't win. Though our families are dysfunctional and painful, darkness doesn't win. Though our bodies are riddled with disease and pain, darkness doesn't win. Though our emotions are run down, depressed, anxious, stressed, darkness doesn't win. Though our battle, even today, is strong and fierce, darkness doesn't win. Though our enemy is prowling like a lion, darkness doesn't win. Through all our stories this morning that we've heard, there's literally been a common thread. Tamar had the court of Judah. Rahab hung a cord out the window. The Passover actually involved red blood over a doorway so the families could be saved. Jesus shed his blood so we could be saved. So today, I've simply asked that everybody be given a red piece of yarn when you leave today. And here's what I'm hoping you'll consider. I would hope that you'd consider maybe just tying this to your Christmas tree, real or fake, it doesn't matter, tie it to your Christmas tree. I would even recommend you tie it someplace that, that maybe you know. Maybe it's not as public as some of the other ornaments. Because here's what I know. This season's going to get crazy. 
And there are going to be times when you're going to be overwhelmed and you're going to be discouraged. And you're going to be beaten down. And you're going to be weeping. And you're going to be lonely. You're going to be desperate. You're going to be angry. You're going to have regret. And it may come to this point where you think, I can't do this anymore. And when you get to the place, I want you to go find the cord that you tied to the tree. And I want you to remember that God sent his son into this dark world. And you have been grafted in, grafted in through the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace on earth will never start out there. Peace in, in your life will never start when your family tree gets straightened out. Peace on earth starts right here. When I remember that I have been grafted into the family of God because Jesus was wounded for my sin. Isn't that great news? Lord, thank you for these incredible folks. Oh, God, I ask that you would just fall on us in a special way right now. Christmas is always so tough because family's tough. And some of us head into holidays with anxiety or some of us are worried and depressed because the family's not going to be what it's supposed to be. I get that. And man, Lord, it's a tough time for so many folks. And so, God, I, I guess I just felt you leading me this week to start out right here. Hey, listen, if you want to be grafted into Jesus' family, you got to make that decision. You don't just live a life and survive and get grafted in. That's not what happens. It's just like the tree at the beginning and the tree at the end of Scripture. You've got to choose. You do. And maybe you've been through a, a mess of Christmases. Maybe you've been through a mess of Christmas seasons. Maybe this year, you're really going to receive the real gift. You may have a loved one who's been praying for you to receive the gift for a long time. And maybe today God's calling your name. He wants to graft you into his family. And if that's you, oh man, this is going to be a great day for you. It's going to be a great Christmas for you. So if you feel him speaking to your heart, a nudging inside, sometimes it's a nudging in your mind. Would you say yes? Would you ask Jesus to graft you into his family? Not because you're amazing, but because you're Rahab, you're Tamar, you're Judah. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. He'll receive you into his family, and you can have that. You just ask. Lord, I pray if people right now listening to the sound of my voice are calling out to you. You would let them know you have heard their cry. 
and even now are grafting them into the wonderful family of God. Not perfect, just saved. Saved. Set on the path to being made holy. Ah, Jesus, you're so beautiful to us. Thank you for taking away our sins, washing us white as snow. It's in your name we pray. Amen.